Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, hey, Mercy Church, thank you for being with us today. Before we jump into our sermon, which I'm so excited about, I want to draw our attention together to next weekend, and here's why. Next weekend, Mercy Church turns five years old. It's our fifth birthday. And we're so excited. It's a really cool thing. So we're going to really, um, we're going to celebrate. All right. We're going to have some, even here in our online experience, our online worship service, we're going to make a point. We've got some uh, great new music we're bringing in along with some other innovative things. It's going to be a great day. I'm so excited for it. And I just think it's really important. uh, A part of walking forward, trusting God is looking back on the faithfulness of God. Right, Gospel memories, if you will, become the fuel for gospel ministry into the future. Right, As we're looking back, we get courage. Man, God has been faithful, so I know he will be faithful. And so we're going to take just a weekend together as a church to celebrate the faithfulness of God. So I really hope you'll be with us again next weekend. We've got a bunch of fun things planned. All right. Now, a part of next weekend celebrations uh, in our physical gathering is going to be baptisms. All right. This is the way Jesus taught us to express our commitment to him. So if you've decided to follow Jesus, uh, whether it's been recently, like maybe during the series, or maybe it's been some time ago, but you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you to take that next step. Look, if you're deciding to follow Jesus, the first step he calls you to take in following him is baptism. All right, so we want to we encourage you to do that. Now, here's the step you can take, all right? You can let us know right there in the chat that we have if you're live tuned in with us or if you're watching this or listening to this afterwards, you can reach out to our church on our website and we can connect with you on how to take the steps to get baptized. We are here to shepherd you through that and want to do that, all right? We're excited, excited to celebrate that with you. Uh, what better way? to celebrate um, our, another year as a church than to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ through baptism, all right? We're pumped about it. Okay, with that said, about next weekend, I want you to open up your Bible over to Mark chapter 8. One more weekend in Mark chapter 8. We are calling this, uh, we've been in a series of sermons. This is our fourth one, this little series that we're calling I Have Decided. And that's because Jesus claimed anyone who wanted to receive his salvation would have to make a decision to do so. There are no accidental followers of Jesus. Nobody becomes a Christian through secondhand faith. What Mark 8 is all about is Jesus showing us who he is and then calling us to a decision about where we stand with him. And today, we're going to complete this series in a very climactic, line-in-the-sand moment where Jesus lays out for everyone who wants to follow him what it's going to take. All right, here's, in, in fact, I could summarize this sermon uh, two ways. We're going to look at the gospel, and then we're going to look at the cost of believing the gospel. And he spends more time, let me, I want to tell you something, in case that sounds familiar in any way. He spends more time on the cost than he does on the gospel 
as if he knows that everyone, even his closest followers, will wage a war in their own soul over whether or not he's really worth it. So as you go into this today, I want you to go in really assessing yourself, regardless of whether you've been around church, around Christianity, for maybe just the length of the series, maybe in just this sermon, or if you've been around Jesus for years and years and years, do you really believe he's worth it? I want you to assess your own life of whether or not you do believe he's worth it, all right? This is a major moment for the first followers of Jesus. I believe it's a major moment, should be, for all of us to assess ourselves. We're just going to follow along the passage, okay? Mark 8, we're going to start in verse 31, go down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. We're going to look at the gospel and the cost. All right, we'll start in the gospel because that's where Jesus starts, verse 31. Let me read verse 31 to you. Jesus, this says, then he, that's Jesus, began to teach them, the disciples, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. I want you to see that right out of the gate, that necessary word. It must happen. See, the gospel, here's, the gospel is news about a set of events that happened and then what those events mean for you and I. And here, Jesus is talking about, at this part, he's talking about the events of the gospel. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise after three days. They must happen. Not they might happen. Must happen. There's a necessity to these events. And verse 32 is going to say, he spoke very plainly about this. He, verse 32, he spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, which is a bold move, rebuking Jesus. Well, here's what, here's what I want you to catch. The reason that I think Mark put in there, he spoke openly about this. Peter's not rebuking Jesus because he doesn't understand. As in like, oh, maybe I misheard. No, no, no. Jesus spoke plainly. It was because he understood and this was not the gospel Peter wanted. Peter wanted triumphant gospel. Peter wanted victorious gospel. Peter wanted the finally, we're the ones that are going to be on top of the world. We're the ones that are going to have the power gospel. And so Peter rebukes Jesus because he thinks what Jesus is saying is not necessary. It's even wrong. And so then Jesus rebukes his rebuke. It's like a re-rebuke. I don't know what we call it. But verse 33, turning around, And looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter, you don't like that I must die. You don't like the necessity of my suffering, rejection, and death. You want to counsel me that there's got to be another way. This can't be God's way. And maybe you didn't realize it. But when you rebuke the words of God, you are speaking the oldest words of Satan himself. And this theme, valuing human concerns over God's concerns, Jesus is going to make that the emphasis of the next few verses. The reason you rebuke the gospel is because you have your own agenda. And the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't work with your agenda. The oldest words of Satan himself has God really said. It's bringing into question that which God has said is certain. And we see that again with that's what Peter's doing here. So here's what I want to do, though. I want to take a second 
This is very important in order to understand and grab hold of the gospel and get clear on the gospel. In fact, in today's sermon, we're going to hear the gospel. And I think there's some of us that just need to clear, be able to clearly articulate it. If someone said, hey, what's the gospel? Can you articulate that in a thought? What we're going to do in order to get there is we're going to look at why Jesus had to die. Because he says it's necessary that he had to die. It's a question a lot of skeptics ask. Why was it necessary that Jesus had to die? What is it? that Satan, Peter, all humanity rebukes Jesus at one point or another. Why did Jesus have to die? I'll give you a couple of reasons. The first one is that God keeps his promises. The son of man must suffer because the scriptures foretold that he would suffer, die, and rise again. Isaiah 53 says he would be despised, afflicted, crushed, and oppressed that he would die. He had to be pierced in his hands and feet because Psalm 22 said he would be. He had to be spit on because Isaiah 50 said he would be. Uh, John Piper, he said it this way. I love it. He said, the script for Jesus's suffering was written hundreds of years before it happened. The son of man must also rise again because Isaiah 53 said he would. This was God's plan. And according to Revelation 13, 8, all of this was written down that the lamb would be slain before the foundation of the world. And I want you to hear, it is really good news to us that God keeps his promises. That God in his character, that his word is unbreakable and he must keep his promises. The whole idea of faith, after all, is based in the certainty of God. He keeps his promises. So if, if he keeps his promises, that means when you do walk through the valley of the shadow of death and God says he will be with you, he will be with you. Right? Because he said he would be with you. It, listen, he says... If you will give yourself and give your cares and anxiety over to him, that he will give you the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. And if he says it, and if he's true to his promises, then when you do give those cares and anxieties and fears over to him, he will give you the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. And if he says one day you will be with him in paradise, you will be with him in paradise. It is so good for us that our God is unchanging and that his word is unbreakable, that he doesn't get up to the line and call an audible and say, you know, I said I was going to do this, but I've changed my mind. That's not our God. Our God never changes his mind. His word is unbreakable. And so his promises are rock solid and we can build our life on them. Think about, just like I think about um, a child, a, a young child that finds comfort in the promise, simple promise of a parent who says, listen, go to sleep tucks him in, go to sleep. You're going to be okay. I will see you in the morning. And they have, that little child has absolute trust in their parent. The trust in the parent makes that promise they just gave that they'll see him in the morning, a certainty, which allows them to go to sleep. The same is true. God reveals himself to us as father. And his word is certain to us. And we can rest our lives, abide in his promises, build our hopes, build our dreams, our future on his promises, build our lives around them because he keeps his promises. And so Jesus had to go to the cross because God promised that he would. And that is good for us. Secondly, not only did God promise it, but we owed a debt to God that we could not pay. I want, this is why it was necessary for Jesus to die. Listen, when someone wrongs you, a debt is established 
that has to be paid by either you or that person. It can happen, let's take a simple example like financially. You're having a party at your apartment and one of your friends accidentally knocks over, smashes a lamp. Uh, One of two things can happen. Either you can look at them and say, that'll be $300. Because for some reason you have really bougie lamp taste and you need a $300 lamp. So that's a different thing. We need to come back to that at some time. But that's, you can say, give me $300. Or you can say, hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Now, either if you do that latter one, what happens to the $300? Well, either you have to go spend $300 more to replace the lamp, or you have to be willing to lose $300 worth of light and get used to a darker room, right? Either your friend pays the cost or you absorb the cost. Now, that's a simple example. Debts are not just financial, right? Think about other areas of life. Someone harms your reputation. That's a debt that's created between you and them. Someone takes something you can't get back. That's a debt. Someone takes the opportunity in your career field that you know was meant for you. That's a debt. That person owes you, and when someone owes you, one of two things can happen. One option is you make them pay. You go and you ruin their reputation since they ruined yours. You destroy their opportunities since they took yours. The problem with this is that as you make someone pay, you yourself start to change for the worst. Vengeance never makes you fulfilled. It hardens you. It makes you colder. That's another reason that God said vengeance belongs to him and him alone, because he knows that when we take it on ourselves, it corrodes our souls. So what's the alternative? What's to forgive? But forgiveness means you will suffer instead of the other person. When you want to, think about it, you know this, when you want to carry out vengeance and you don't, you withhold, it's agony. It hurts not to do that. Forgiveness is agony, but it's the only way to break the cycle of retaliation back and forth. The only way to avoid the hardening of the heart. When the Bible says you've been bought with a price, what it's saying is that our sin is ultimately against God. And if God is, if he's infinitely holy, then our sin creates an infinite debt. God says the debt for sin is death. You got to, this is how we arrive at the gospel here. We sinners deserve death for sinning against an infinite God. But the only way God can pardon us and not judge us, carry out what we owe, is to go to the cross and absorb it himself. That's why Jesus says it's necessary, that I must suffer. See, here's what's so beautiful. The cross of Jesus Christ is where the eternal justice of God and the eternal mercy of God meet. And they, find, they converge here. We deserve to pay the debt, but God in his love for us would not let us go pay that debt, so he sends Jesus to pay it for us. There's this old hymn that I grew up with. It's called Jesus Paid It All. It says, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Sin had left a debt I could never pay, but he washed it white as snow. He paid it all. He kept his promise and he had to pay the debt. And in doing so, listen, this is the, oh, it's beautiful. He opened up a way for us to know God again. Yeah. Not know about God. Listen, this is critical. 
Because you don't come to church just to learn some things about God. Everything you learn about God is meant to inform your relationship with God. All right? Not just to know about God, but to know God, to have a relationship with him. Just like any, think about this. Any relationship gets harmed when a debt is established between two people. Right? And the harm to the relationship depends on the size of the debt. And some relationships just get outright, they end because of the size of the debt. Our relationship with God was ruined by our sin, our rebellion against his ways. And in our rebellion, we rejected the very love of God the Father that we were created to be sustained by, to find peace through, to find wholeness through. This is Romans 5.10 though. For if while we were, listen, enemies, we sinned, we rebelled, we're enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, that's, that's relationship language, having been reconciled to God, we will be saved by his life. We'll be brought back into the Father, to a relationship with the Father where there's life. This is the gospel. This is where we've arrived. I told you the gospel and the cost. The gospel, because your sin has broken a relationship you cannot fix and has created a debt you cannot pay. God who keeps his promises has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to him. Jesus had to suffer in your place. He had to be rejected in your place, had to die in your place so that he could then rise and defeat sin and death once and for all. The gospel in a simple thought. If you want to be able to to share it with a friend, family member, maybe just let it rest in you. Is that in his love for me, Jesus died and Jesus rose to save me. In his love for me, Jesus died and Jesus rose to save me. That's the gospel that is the bedrock center of the Christian faith. That's the gospel that we celebrate here at Mercy Church. And Romans 6.23 calls this gospel the announcement, the news of a gift. A gift from God to you. You don't earn it. You receive it. And that's the call to many who are watching, who are listening today. You know it. You've been trying to earn it. <laughs> You've been trying to justify yourself Maybe, or maybe in front of others, maybe before God, you've been trying to earn your status. You just, it's never going to work. That's what he's about to talk about with the cost of believing the gospel. It's never going to work. You receive it. But before you receive it, Jesus says, make sure you count the cost. That's the second half of the text, second half of our time, our message this morning. And I think this is fascinating. So you got the gospel, you got the cost of believing the gospel. Now, I just told you it's a gift. And that there's nothing you can do to earn it. But then there is a cost. Sounds like a contradiction at first. Let me explain. You cannot receive new life in Christ and still keep your old life. You can only have one life. So you got to decide. Here's what he says to the crowd. And it's what Jesus says to you. I want to read it to you and I want you to help. I want to help you see what the cost is. And listen, Christians, you're watching this. I believe one of the reasons we experience very little impact of the gospel in our lives is because we have chosen to ignore what Jesus says right here. And I think you might find that you thought 
you were a follower of Jesus, but when Jesus lays out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you might find right here that you never were a follower of Christ. And today's the day that you can say, okay, I'm actually counting up the cost of what it means to follow him. And I want to surrender my whole life to him. I thought I was, but I recognize now just being around Christianity, just assenting to some really easy to believe things about Jesus. That's not true Christianity. And I want to believe in full. He's going to give you that right here. All right. Verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the cost of following Jesus, all right? Listen, first you got to let go of your life. You must let go of your life. Jesus is the king, but he's the king on a cross, And therefore, to follow him into new life says, we too must go to a cross. We got to die. But how? You don't die physically as a payment for your sin. That's what Jesus did. So what does this mean? Well, verse 35 and 36 help explain. It seems like a, a little riddle almost, you know, but it's actually, it gets clear pretty quick. Whoever wants to save his life. Look, this is what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to save our lives. It's why you're on a diet. It's why you're on a first name basis with your cardiologist, right? It's why you're on a dating app. It's why you wear a mask. You're trying to save your life. You're trying to make it whole, make it complete. And if anyone wants to save his life, and look, this is, what, this is what basically every religion's goal is, right? We want to save our lives. Every culture even has a way to save your life, has a way to gain respectability and a sense of self-worth. Maybe even if it's a traditional culture, That'll tell you, you got to have a family. You build a family and you build a legacy through that family. Then you'll have self-worth and identity. If it's a more individualistic culture, it'll say you got to build wealth. You got to build a reputation, build a name for yourself. And then you'll have value. Every culture, every religion tells you the way to save your life is by what you build for yourself. And Jesus says, it won't work. It won't work. In fact, Even if you gain the whole world, it wouldn't be enough to fill the void in your soul. If you're building your identity on who loves you, on what career you have, if anything goes wrong with that, you'll lose yourself with it. If anyone had the whole, I mean, it's like if anyone did actually have the whole world and was able to look into tomorrow and see that their soul is lost and then they were offered a trade. You can save your soul, but it'll cost you everything. You'd do it in a heartbeat. Everybody would. But here's the problem. How do you know you're losing your soul? How do you know? It's not like there's a check engine light above your right eye that says, soul fading, right? Turn back now. Doesn't happen. I was watching, um, I'm in love with this new uh, show on the History Channel called Alone, all right? Now this show, they drop people off and they're alone. It's real, the name kind of makes sense. So they're alone. Whoever survives the longest wins half a million dollars. 
All right, there was this, uh, the season was wrapping up, this last one I was watching, and this guy looks into, they give them video cameras so that, you know, you can watch him be alone. And um, this guy is talking into the camera. He's been out there for like 60 days or something, and he is starving. Like his body is physically now eating the muscles. He's going through starvation, and he looks at it and he says, I really want that half a million dollars, but what good is it if I permanently injure myself and I'm not able to enjoy it? What good is it? It's not worth it anymore. And I'm like, dude, that'll preach. But he couldn't hear me. But I was, I was shouting in my living room because he, he got it. And I found myself thinking, how do we know that our souls are starving? How do we know that we're withering away, losing our souls? You know it by your life. You're unfulfilled even when your life scorecard says you're doing pretty well. You're different in private than in public. You're more prone to be withdrawn, isolated, bitter. You blame shift. You distract yourself with things so that you never have to have a moment alone, just you and God, because you do not want to go down that road. You're not ready to deal with you right now. You're losing your soul to gain the world. And Jesus says, not only is it a tragedy, it's not going to end well anyways. That's the little clue in verse 37. What can anyone give in exchange for his life? In other words, we're all going to die. There's nothing you can give that you can have life eternal. Nothing we have will go with us, right? You can't take anything with you. Everyone loses their life. If everybody does lose their life, why not lose your life the only way that allows you to find true life? And that's where we get to the other part of this. What's the cost? You must lose your life, but listen, you must let go of your life for Jesus and the gospel. That's the cost. Not just let go of your life. He didn't call us to lose our lives for nothing like some Eastern mysticism. He says, lose your life for him and for the gospel. It's specific. I love that that little thing in the gospel is in there. It's specific. It's awesome. He says, look, look at his love for you. Don't just think I'm going to live God's way now. No, don't start there. That's moralism wrapped up in some spiritual language, okay? Don't start there. It starts with seeing God's love for you in the sun. Take strength from God's love for you, from his sacrifice for you. Take assurance on whether or not you improved your sales numbers or your boss approved of your promotion or whatever. That, that old stuff is gone. You're free from that. Instead, you can just find your identity and assurance in Jesus and his love for you. Take joy there. Take identity from there. Stand and build your life there. And that's what verse 38 is getting at. And Christian, this should be a warning shot to us, I think. It's a haunting verse because I think it reveals another aspect of what's at stake. It's not just about giving up things. It's about giving up the praise of people. Verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Don't gloss over that. In this adulterous and sinful generation. Means they have gone after other things to be their true lover, their true God instead of God himself. Adulterous and sinful generation. When the son, listen, the son of man will also be ashamed of him. The one who does that. The one who says, I'm ashamed of God in front of others. The son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This was Peter's problem. 
He wasn't, listen, he wasn't necessarily ashamed of Jesus, just his words. And I think this is the problem for many Christians. You're cool to associate yourself with Jesus. You just wish he didn't say some of those things. Wish he didn't talk about hell. Wish he didn't talk about him being the only way because it doesn't play well with your friends. Like it's bad PR and what you really mean when you say that's bad PR for Jesus, what you really mean is that Jesus is making you look bad. If that's you, you're still trying to save your life. And that means you will not only lose life here, but millions of angels are going to come and Jesus Christ, the son and God, the father are going to come to judge the world. And he says, they're going to be ashamed of you then for you being ashamed of him. Now there's nothing short of eternity at stake here. And I would be an awful pastor if I glossed over that just to hope maybe make you feel good. And we all kind of ignore the hard things. No, we got to deal with that. You must lose your love of this world, lose your self-importance, and then listen, the experience of the gospel, of believing the gospel, is that you will find Jesus to be so great, so valuable, so fulfilling, that you will gladly give up earthly possessions and earthly praise to receive the words of the Father, when you go to be with him, well done, good and faithful servant. See, those two things, earthly possessions and earthly praise, they are the great magnets that tug on our souls. We crave them, and Jesus says we pursue them at our own demise. But we can be free. In fact, I love the little parable Jesus told uh, his followers about what it meant to follow him. He said, listen, the kingdom of God, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. A treasure. A guy stumbles across this treasure in the field. Can't believe what he sees. Immediately he runs and sells everything he has because he can't have that and everything he has. He has to decide. And it's not a hard decision. That's the cool thing about the, the parable. He runs immediately. Don't even think about it. Sells everything with joy. And then he runs and goes and buys the field so that he can have the treasure He does all that because there was treasure. That's what Jesus offers. Treasure. That's how he describes life with him. New life in Christ. Treasure. Abundant life here and life eternal. And on top of that, if you try to find your life here apart from him, you'll lose it anyway. I love this uh, way C.S. Lewis, the very last words he says in mere Christianity. He says, look for yourself. You'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Lose your life for him, and you'll find true life. Here's how it starts. You repent and believe. To lose your old life, that word repentance just means turn. To lose your old life, because you have to decide. Old life or life with Christ. To lose your old life means to turn from it, to tell God you want him. You want to believe. To the Christian listening, watching this, maybe that's from something that you have been, if you're in complete honesty right now, you've been chasing harder after that than you have after God. You're still trying to go back and grab that old life. 
need to come to him repentant. Maybe you've thought all along, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's only been because you've been around Christianity. You didn't realize what was at stake. You've never surrendered your life, turned from it, and received new life in Christ. That's what you got to do today. Turn back. Repent from where you've been ashamed of him. Turn back to him and lay it all down before him. And then, for some of you, like I told you at the start of this, your step is going to be to be baptized. This is your act of belief. Like I said, next weekend we're going to baptize. And this is not about being committed to even to Mercy Church or to look good and to be approved by a bunch of people. No, it's professing the simple gospel message in love. Jesus died and Jesus rose for me. And we're going to put you in the water to symbolize you're joining with him. You're following him in his death. And we're going to pull you back up, joining with him in his resurrection. He tells me to be baptized, so I will do it gladly. I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel that I profess. Instead, I'm going to stand fully in it, thankful, with arms lifted high. Thankful for what he's done for me. In fact, if you're in our online worship service right now, maybe you just need to post that, that I want to be baptized. Tell one of our, one of our folks in there, one of our hosts, that you want to get baptized, and let's do that. Let's stand celebrating what you will find, I promise, even in that chat. Definitely when you gather, man, you're going to find nothing but other fellow sinners who have found joy in the salvation of Christ standing and celebrating with you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you for reconciling the relationship that we broke. Thank you, Father. Thank you for revealing to us that this this race that we run, that it doesn't end in wholeness. It doesn't end in fulfillment. It ends empty. Thank you for revealing that and for making a way, a way to true life. We praise you for that. If you've never prayed this before, I want to let you do this now. God, I'm counting the cost. I know it means I got to lose my life. And I believe. I surrender my life. I receive the gift of salvation. I believe in love. Jesus died for me. And Jesus rose for me. I believe it. All I have is yours. Thank you, God, for saving me. Now listen, if that's what you prayed, the bold next step, don't be ashamed of him and his words. Be thankful. Celebrate. Let us help you celebrate. Let us know we can help celebrate what God has done in your life. Lord, thank you for your grace on us. May we boldly, with joy, celebrate, not to be ashamed, but to celebrate you and your words is the life they give to us. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.